0: everyone Uh, we have a few announcements to cover this evening we do not have any new uh, health updates to share or or any specific prayer requests to mention but we do want to remind you that you can go to our website and go to the health updates page and you can uh, read what uh, prayer requests are posted there as well as the ones that are on our our bulletin online Um, you can check those out regarding announcements we do want to remind those who are joining us online to be sure to fill out that attendance form available on the watch life page we want to have a record of your attendance just as much as we want to have a record of those who are present with us tonight so be sure to do that we also want to let everybody know that this Saturday October the 7th will be our next go and do event it is a door knocking to invite the surrounding community to our fall festival that fall festival will be held the last Saturday of this month so we want to get out there and and invite as many as we can uh, those who are participating in this are asked to meet in the Fellowship Hall at 10:30. Uh, coffee and donuts will be provided, and then we'll break up into teams to go uh, to go uh, invite people to the Fall Festival. With uh, with a, I believe there's invites that are going to be passed out. Also, this coming Sunday, which is I don't have a which will be October the 8th, there is a meeting for all care group leaders. Uh, in the Annex 2 auditorium upstairs. So if you're a care group leader, please make plans to be here Sunday immediately following the morning worship. And if you have any questions about that, you can see David Evans. Additionally, uh, after the AM worship this Sunday, October the 8th, there's a meeting in the training room right back here for all college-age young adults and anyone else interested in helping with a, a Donuts with Santa service project. You can see Scott Sitton or Sean Kirtland regarding that. There there are lots of upcoming activities and events all throughout this month, so please be sure to check out the bulletin or the church calendar on the website uh, to stay apprised of those. Um, But those are all the announcements I've been given for tonight, so let's uh, take a moment to go to God in prayer. Our Heavenly Father, we are uh, privileged to speak to you tonight, and we're grateful that you uh, are willing to listen to us and want to hear from us. And Lord, we may not be bringing any special prayer requests today, but you you know those individuals that we are concerned about. You know those individuals that have uh, been on our hearts. And whatever uh, those who are dealing with uh, physical illnesses or spiritual illnesses or, or whatever it may be, Lord, we ask that you bless them in whatever way they need. And Lord, tonight we have this unique opportunity to get, engage in study. And we, as always, ask for your blessings on our time of study and help us to... Uh, uh, benefit from investigating your word, in particular in this class, as we investigate how to be better students of it. And Lord, may you bless all the classes that are meeting here tonight so that uh, learning takes place and application takes place and we can leave here uh, enriched from our time. But most of all, Lord, may all glory be given to you. And Lord, we have lots of uh, activities and opportunities uh ongoing and upcoming, and we ask for your, your blessings on every effort that we engage in, uh, whether it be a form of worship or, or whether it be a fellowship or, or whether it be a service project or an evangelistic opportunity. Lord, may you bless all of these efforts so that your kingdom uh, grows and your name is glorified. Lord, we love you, and it is through the name of Jesus Christ that we offer this prayer. Amen. All right, as we continue this study uh, of how to study the Bible, we continue to engage with... I mean, reboot this thing real quick. We continue to engage with this book entitled Grasping God's Word. Uh, I am not advancing. Reboot. There we go. Let's see if this will work now. Uh, And we are in, in the process of talking about context. To grasp God's Word, we must understand the meaning of the text in context and apply that meaning to our lives. Last week, we, we uh, began talking about context because there are really two categories of context we need to concern ourselves with. The first is the historical cultural context, what we often refer to as the background information. And that's where we spent most of our time last week. But we also have to consider the literary context. I want to do a little bit of review from last week and and cap off that discussion before we move on to literary context. I want to remind you that historical cultural context... Involves the the biblical writer, the author of the text, the, the biblical audience, we're talking about the recipients of the text, and any historical cultural elements touched on by the passage itself, whether that be geography, social customs, religion, economy, politics, geography, whatever it may be. We have to remember that God did not dictate most of the Bible in the first person. Instead, God, who we should call the ultimate source, spoke through human writers of Scripture, which we could call the immediate source, to address the real-life needs of people at a particular time and in a particular culture. And since God spoke His message in, in specific historical situations, we should take the ancient historical cultural situation seriously the way we approach the Bible uh, should match how God gave us the Bible. In other words, the way we listen to what God said should match the way God chose to communicate it. And the truth is that each passage of Scripture was God's Word to other people before it became God's Word to us. So we need to appreciate it the way it was written to the original audience before we can connect it to ourselves. And some of the considerations we said we need to uh, Consider, when looking at historical cultural context, is the biblical writer. Uh, We need to know as much about the human author as we can, or the the more we know about the human author, the better. The more we're going to be able to understand uh, some of the context. We also need to understand the biblical audience, the recipients of that text, or the addressees of that text. The more we understand about them, the more we can appreciate the context as well. And then there are miscellaneous items mentioned here, like the historical situation, social, geographical, religious, political, economic. Those type uh, pieces of information are going to be beneficial. And we looked at examples of all those last week. What we weren't able to get into is this part right here. We We do need to be aware of some of the dangers associated with studying background. Some of those dangers include inaccurate information. Just because background material makes a great sermon illustration does not mean it is true. Now, this is one I take very seriously. When it comes to my teaching or preaching, I will sometimes come across something that I think is just amazing background information that would make a great point in a sermon. But if I cannot verify it by more than one source, I will not use it. Because I need to know... That this is accurate information not just something that someone came up with that sounded good because it sounds good to me doesn't mean it's worth sharing with you so I have to I make sure I verify by more than one source before I use it a great example of this that you've actually probably heard before comes from Matthew chapter 19 verses 23 and 24 where Jesus said it's easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for someone who is rich to enter the kingdom now for many years Uh, and I heard this growing up at least once Uh, the explanation at times has been given that there was a gate in Jerusalem called the camel's gate and that a camel could only get through that gate by having its load removed and getting on its knees and crawling through that gate and it's been said that what Jesus' statement here about wealth was that it's going to be difficult to get into heaven, just like it's difficult for that camel to get through the gate, but it's possible. The problem with that analogy and and that background information is that there has never been a camel's gate located in Jerusalem. Archaeologically speaking, they've never uncovered that. There's no evidence of it. And so using that illustration is using un... What's the word I'm looking for here? Unverifiable information. So we have to be careful with that, particularly as as preachers and teachers. But even in your study, you may come across, you might open up a commentary to do some reflecting and come across things like that. If you can't verify it, don't use it. That's my policy. And that's why you got to be careful with the internet. Because the internet has a lot of great sounding stuff but that doesn't mean everything you find out there is true and accurate you be sure you verify things from a from more than one source Uh, a couple Sundays ago it's been more than a couple in the name dropping series in uh in, in listening to a sermon on one of the names of god i came across a preacher who mentioned this chinese um letter uh that represented a sheep and represented the, the idea of righteousness. And it was beautifully laid out, beautifully told by this preacher. But I was like, I don't know if that Chinese symbol actually means what he's claiming it means, because he's American. So I reached out to, to Josie, Jane, and asked her about it, and she confirmed it. And once I got that confirmation, I was like, man, I've got my closing illustration. I'm ready to go. But I wasn't going to use it until I could verify that it was true. And that's the way we've got to approach context. We've got we've got to be able to do some verification, not just accept it willy-nilly. So uh, one thing you got to be aware of when studying background information is that you're not just using inaccurate information because it sounds good. The other thing you need to be aware of or or, uh, conscious of is elevating background information above the text. We study background not to lose ourselves in a maze of historical trivia but to grasp the meaning of the passage you know it's very easy if you love facts to get caught up in the facts to get caught up in the history to get caught up in the explanations and the details and not remain focused on the chief objective which is studying the text so when you're studying the parable of the pharisee and tax collector in Luke chapter 18 Verses 9 through 14. You may be tempted to spend all your time learning about Pharisees and tax collectors, and, and you certainly need to know something about those two groups and their role and, and, in, and their reputation in Jesus' day, but you don't want to miss the key element of the, uh, the key point of the whole parable. The key point of the parable is that God judges the proud and exalts the humble. And you can get so caught up in focusing on Pharisees and task collectors that you miss the key point. So don't let your fascination with the background keep you from seeing the, the application, uh, seeing the, how this uh, affects the text. And, and don't, don't just uh, get so caught up in those details that you miss what you're actually there to study. And that leads to this last one another danger associated with studying background, becoming a database of ancient facts. Have you ever encountered somebody who can just rattle off facts without giving it a moment's hesitation? They're just a walking game of trivial pursuit. Your knowledge of historical cultural facts is not as important as your knowledge of God's Word. we got to keep that in context. Some individuals just love studying and love learning and love filling themselves with, With that background information and that's all well and good but if you can't connect it to Scripture why are you studying now I'm not saying you shouldn't investigate stuff on your own for your own uh, benefit and uh, intelligence and whatnot. I'm saying if you're doing it in context of studying God's Word don't forget God's Word comes first and shouldn't it be more important to be a database of God's Word than a database of ancient facts so Keep it in context, keep it in its proper perspective. That's all I'm trying to communicate, and all that the authors of this book were trying to communicate. So, what I want to do for just a minute is do a little historical, cultural context practice. What I mean is, we spent last week uh, examining examples of uh, noticing things about the author, noticing things about the audience, noticing general historical context in passages. I'm going to throw up some passages from the book of Philippians. And what I want you to do, we're not going to take a long time on this, is just look, I've got it broken out into different sections. In each section, find something you think fits into the historical, cultural context that should be recognized in the text. So we'll start with the first five verses of Philippians chapter 1. Paul and Timothy, servants of Christ Jesus, to all the saints in Christ Jesus who are at Philippi with the overseers and deacons, Grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. I thank my God in all my remembrance of you, always in every prayer of mine for you all making my prayer with joy because of your partnership in the gospel from the first day until now. Anything you see in those first five verses that relates to historical cultural context. What's the first thing we're supposed to look for in historical, cultural context? What was that? That, Nothing. It wasn't the first thing, but that is something where. But in this context, where is a reference to the audience? Who's the audience? Who's the recipient of the letter? The church in Philippi. That's a historical, cultural, context item. Understand the church in Philippi, it's the church in Philippi. And when you're studying a book like Philippians, and you, you notice the where, you notice the who it's written to, the location, you see Philippi, you know what that should trigger? Hey, did Paul go on a missionary journey to Philippi? And what happened when Paul was on that missionary journey in Philippi? I should go back and, find, I should go back and make a connection to the events of Acts, particularly Acts chapter 16, where events unfold in the city of Philippi. So that's the, that catches your audience um, category of context. But the first thing we said is uh, on the list of things you should be looking for, historical, cultural, context, is what? Anybody know? It begins with an A. It ends with an author. Who wrote it? Paul, oh, man, y'all are, y'all are struggling tonight. It's gonna to be a long night. I'm gonna tell you that right now. Author is Paul. Uh, but notice Paul is not alone. He paired it his name with who? Timothy. So now, okay, now I've got some context here. I've got Paul and Timothy. Should I consider looking into Timothy a little bit on this too? What's Timothy's relationship to Paul? What's Timothy's relationship to Philippi? Now you're getting some historical cultural context. And it's, and it's worth noting that because because Timothy 2, Timothy's story with Paul starts in the same chapter that Paul went to Philippi. So there's some great historical cultural context there. It's, so start noticing those things. I, I think it's even worth noting in this particular letter, it's, the letter is written to the church in Philippi, to the saints in Philippi, with the overseers and deacons. What does that tell you about the church in Philippi? They have overseers and deacons. So that's worth, that's historical cultural context worth noting about the audience as well. Now let's look at the verses 12 through 15 of the first chapter. I want you to know brothers that what has happened to me has really served to advance the gospel so that it has become known throughout the whole imperial guard and to all the rest that my imprisonment is for Christ. And most of the brothers having become confident in the Lord by my imprisonment are much more bold to speak the word without fear. Some indeed preach Christ from envy and rivalry, but others from goodwill. Do you see any historical cultural context that needs to be mentioned here? Paul's imprisonment. Paul mentions that he's in prison. Now here's the thing. For Paul, being in prison is like going to a hotel as much as he was in prison And so it's worth acknowledging imprisonment and maybe even connecting some dots and thinking about going back and researching the times he's in prison. You can go to 2 Corinthians chapter 11, where Paul lists all of his, um, uh, all the things he's experienced negatively, all the persecution he's received, and and he'll list many of the things he's experienced. He'll he'll say that he's been um, uh, beaten with rods, and he'll say how many times? He'll mention that he's been stoned, he'll mention, and, and he'll mention how many times. He'll mention he's been shipwrecked, and how many, he'll mention how many times he's suffered some of these things, but he can't even give you a number on how many times he's been in prison. It's fascinating when you, go, when you go think about that. And then you can look at his imprisonments that happen in the book of Acts. There's a few of those. And this is not the only time his imprisonment gets mentioned in Philippians, the Philippians letter. Four times he's going to mention it so it's worth connecting dots between those references that's a cultural historical cultural context do you notice anything else that would fall in historical cultural context Imperial Guard that gives us context for where Paul is when he writes because if you look into the Imperial Guard that was a special almost that was almost a special bodyguard group For the Emperor. There's a reference we'll see in a moment in chapter 4 that gives us more insight on this, but what Paul is implying here for us is that he's currently imprisoned in Rome. At least that's the best um, logical explanation for the reference to the Imperial Guard, because when you research them, they were specifically stationed in Rome. So that has some historical cultural context as well. Let's look at this, this passage, verses 19 through 26 of Philippians chapter 1. For I know that through your prayers and the help of the Spirit of Jesus Christ, this will turn out for my deliverance, that is, it is my eager expectation and hope that I will not be at all ashamed, but that will with full courage, now as always, Christ will be honored in my body, whether by life or by death. For to me to live is Christ and to die is gain. If I live Do you sense any historical cultural context here? Anything giving us insight into the author, the recipients, or the circumstances that are happening at the time of this writing? Seems like he's hard-pressed old, suffered a lot. Okay. Yeah, later in, in some of his other writings. Now we know he's in prison, right? What does this passage imply is currently happening with his imprisonment? His preference is death. That's a great observation. He has a preference for dying. But does he think he's going to die? No. What he, what's being communicated here, historically and culturally that's significant, is that he's awaiting sentencing. He's awaiting to find out if he's going to be put to death or be released. He's ready to die, and he sees the benefit in it, but at the same time, he, he anticipates his release. You get to the letter to, uh, to the second letter to Timothy, you've got a similar imprisonment situation. But Paul doesn't have, at the end of the letter, he doesn't have any expectation of being released. He expects it's the end. It's a very different tone than this one. There is a hopeful tone here. So just understanding that, that in, in the aftermath of reading about his imprisonment, we now have context of he's, he's, being, he's awaiting sentencing, but he anticipates release uh, instead of death. This, this kind of takes us back to the first verse. We have an expansion of our understanding of Timothy's relationship to this congregation. Timothy's getting mentioned again. And in this context, he's being mentioned as, hey, Paul's going to send him to you. That probably means Timothy is the bearer of this letter. He's the one transporting this letter from Paul to Philippi. On top of that, Paul mentions his proven worth He's acknowledging that there's no relationship between Timothy and the church in Philippi. And once again, which we haven't mentioned this yet, once again, Paul is uh, commenting on his hope to come to them soon. There's little bits of cultural, historical context there. I'm going to skip ahead a little bit. Oh, wait, I forgot about this section. Uh, We do need to read this. I have thought it necessary to send to you Epaphroditus, my brother and fellow worker and fellow soldier and your messenger. And I, I should be fair. Really, Timothy's probably not the one that took the letter. He probably followed up shortly thereafter because this guy's going to take the letter. Verse 25, I have thought it necessary to send to you Epaphroditus, my brother and fellow worker and fellow soldier, and your messenger and minister to my need, for he has been longing for you all We have a person mentioned, Epaphroditus. And what do we know about Epaphroditus based on what's written here? Say that again. Fellow worker worker with Paul. That makes you want to go, okay, is he mentioned anywhere else? And then you say, "I I need to investigate that. What else? He ministered to Paul's needs. What does that mean? That's worth finding out. What we'll find out in the context of the fourth chapter is that meant there was a financial contribution sent by, by, from the church in Philippi to help Paul, and Epaphroditus was the one bearing that gift. What else do we learn about Epaphroditus here? Say what, Rich? With, with Philippi. Okay, so th- now we've got our third named individual with a relationship to the church in Philippi. Miss Debbie? He suffered, he fell sick. This guy got sick and almost died from an illness. And that's worth acknowledging as well. So, we, we learned some things about Epaphroditus, and, and it connects us. It, it's, there's context here that we need to consider who he is, what his relationship is to Paul, how he's involved in other places, things like that. So, Uh, And and in context, it appears he's more than likely going to be the one that takes the letter back because Paul's sending him quickly, whereas Timothy has to wait until Paul finds out what's going on. Mm -hmm. Uh, More than likely, but you bring up a great observation, like when you're reading the text and you notice that, it's worth finding out. Is this a, a, a blood relative, or is this a spiritual relative? Because you got the same thing with Timothy in places where he'll refer to him as my son. But we know who his parents were. So, but that kind of stuff is really great to observe and say, okay, what's, how, how, how significant is this relationship? That's a great observation as well. All right, let me see if I want to... Uh, yeah, I will skip that one. So chapter 4 in the first three verses... Let me... Get there in my notes. Therefore, my brothers, whom I love and long for, my joy and crown, stand firm. Thus in the Lord, my beloved, I entreat Eodia and I entreat Syntike to agree in the Lord. Yes, I ask you also, true companion, help these women who have labored side by side with me in the gospel together with Clement and the rest of my fellow workers whose names are in the book of life. Context. What do you see? What would you say, Joe? The two women mentioned here, Euodia and, and Syntyche, we have two more— well, we actually have three more names in this passage. It's one of the, again, you want to see if you find these names anywhere else in context. What do we learn about Euodia and Syntyche? Not They're not in agreement. Now we know an issue that's going on in Philippi. Two women not in agreement. You think this would affect the message that Paul's going to send to this church? Notice in also that not only is he addressing them, but when he speaks of true companion, he's addressing the church. Hey, church, help these women. So when you go back to Philippians chapter 2, and he leads it off by saying if there's any encouragement, if there," he, he has this whole section in the lead up to his... Um, pronouncement about having the same mind as Christ. He has this whole section that's about unity and about putting others' interests before your own and about being humble. Now we have context for why he feels the need to address some of those things because we've discovered that there's an issue between two women in that congregation who can't agree. And he needs to address unity as he does in chapter 2. He needs to address grumbling and complaining, which he does in chapter 2. Now we start to understand why he has the message he has in some parts of this letter. And then uh, we'll skip that one and get down to the end of the letter. Greet every saint in Christ Jesus. The brothers who are with me greet you. All the saints greet you, especially those of Caesar's household. The grace of the Lord Jesus Christ be with your spirit. Context. Anybody see anything? Historical, cultural, context. Christians in Caesar's household. So number one we see Caesar's household one that impacts place location where Paul is it's an, it's a second source of, of, of identifying him in Rome but two there's converts in the household of Caesar that could be relatives that could be servants we don't know that could be soldiers we don't know but what we do know is that Paul's making headway in Caesar's household so you start discovering all these uh, context clues to help you understand what's going on at that time, why the author is writing, things like that. That's the purpose of historical, cultural context or background information, as we sometimes call it. I want to transition now to talking about literary context. As I mentioned on the front end, we have two types of context to consider whenever we're studying the Bible: the historical and the literary. Historical is worried about, um, uh, well, history, of course. That's trying to not sound so redundant. But, uh, but also things related to the author, things related to the audience, things that are happening at that time. Literature is not worried so much about the outside, but the... the, the literature is more concerned with the form of the writing. And so when we deal with literature, when we're talking about literary context, we're particularly concerned about the form the passage takes, as well as the words, the sentences, and the paragraphs that surround the specific passage we're focused on. So, literary context will involve two primary focuses. The first is genre, and the second is surrounding context. And let me—we're uh, going to spend our time for the rest of this evening f- focusing on these two elements and expounding upon them. Let's first talk about genre. Now, you, you know what genre is. Genre is uh, uh, simply a reference to different categories of t- or types of literature that can be found. Particularly for our context, we're talking about being found in the Bible. So you are aware that, I, I, that there are multiple types of genre in Scripture. So for instance, if you go to the Old Testament, you're going to encounter things like uh, narrative and law and poetry and prophecy and wisdom literature. Different types of genre. When you get to the New Testament, you're going to encounter uh, some similar genres, but also some newer ones. For instance, you'll encounter the Gospels, History, Letter, and Apocalyptic Literature. And all these types of genre can be uh, similar, but they can also be very different. And then in bo- both the Old and the New Testament, you have some subgenres that are going to pop up, like parables, riddles, sermons, etc. And so being aware of genre greatly matters. And I want to explain why. Think of it this way. You can think of each genre as a different kind of game, complete with its own set of rules. I'm going to read with you an example they, they have used in the book. Think about genres as being different sports. Every sport has its own unique set of rules, and you can't apply the rules of one sport onto another and it still work. so Think for a moment of a a European soccer fan attending his first American football and basketball game. In American football, the offensive and defensive players can use their hands to push their opponents. In basketball and soccer, they cannot. In basketball, players cannot kick the ball, but they can hold it with their hands. In soccer, the reverse is true. In football, everyone can hold the ball with his hands, but only one person can kick it. In soccer, everyone can kick the ball, but only one person can hold it. Unless we understand the rules under which the game is played, what is taking place is bound to be confusing. There are different rules for every sport, and they contradict the rules of other sports. And so we need to know what sport we're playing so that we understand the rules of that sport, and we can understand the sport. Same thing with genre. The rules of narrative are not the same rules for poetry. The rules for letters and epistles is not the same as the rules for apocalyptic literature. So we've got to be aware of genres so that we understand the literary context. Even though the author and... That's one of those nights, huh? Even though the author and reader cannot have a face-to-face conversation, they meet in the text where they are able to communicate because they subscribe to a common set of rules, the rules of a particular genre. We're never going to be able to have a one-on-one conversation with the original authors in this life. We are separated by them. You remember that river in the diagram, separated by culture, time, place, things like that? But if we can understand the genre that they're writing with, we have a boundary, a parameter. We have a set of rules that we can stay within to help us understand what they're saying. So that's why genre is so important. We should be used to this because we encounter multiple types of genre every day. In the course of a day, you might encounter a newspaper article, a blog post, a social media post, a menu, a text message, an email, junk mail in your mailbox. You encounter all types of genre. And you don't approach a text message the same way you approach a menu. You don't approach your junk mail the same way you might approach your social media posts that you read. Think about it. When when text messaging, how many of you use shorthand? How many of you will type the words LOL? Raise your hand if you use LOL. I can wholeheartedly say I've never used it. I'm uncomfortable with it for some reason, and I have no explanation. But we, would that make sense in conversation? When people actually say LOL in conversation, don't you want to just smack them? It doesn't, because I said we're talking about genres here. We're, that becomes a different, that works in the text messaging genre, it doesn't work in other genres. So we get this. In our everyday life I know that when I'm looking at a menu I'm not going to have necessarily great paragraphs involved although I really do like it when they spell it out personally my menu I want pictures I want images when I go to the cheesecake factory I don't get the menu I go on the app and I scroll the pictures you get stuck on that cheesecake page with all those pictures it's rough anyway we understand genres matter, and they matter in the Bible just as much. So in order, to communicate for, in order for communication to occur, the reader, the reader must be on the same page as the author in terms of genre. Genre acts as a kind of covenant of communication, a, a fixed agreement between author and reader about how to communicate. So genres shape our expectations about how to approach a particular text, And so to disregard literary genre in the Bible is to violate our covenant with the biblical author. We've got to appreciate genre. We've got to recognize genre, and we've got to understand the parameters of genre. So we'll talk about that in the coming couple of weeks as we progress a little bit further. It's kind of easy for us to understand narrative genre for the most part. That's why it's really, really comfortable for us to read a book like Genesis or to read the Gospels. But then you get into the genre of law and you're reading through Leviticus and you just want to hit your head against the wall. You might even feel that way sometime with the prophets. Prophecy is its whole own genre and it can be challenging to comprehend. And then there's the book of Revelation. It's got three genres wrapped up in one text. It's got letters in chapters 2 and 3, it's got prophecy in some parts, but majority of it is apocalyptic, which is a totally weird ballgame genre. But we've got to understand this to be able to appreciate each text in its own, in its own particular way. I'm going to leave genre aside for a little bit, and we're going to talk about surrounding context. I know we're using context a lot. Here's what this is referring to. Surrounding context simply refers to the texts that surround the passage you're studying. This includes the words, sentences, paragraphs, and discourses that come before and after your passage. So when it comes to understanding the literary context, it's not just about understanding genre. It's also understanding what's happening in the immediate vicinity of your particular text. Here's an example that was given that I I thought was uh, pretty good. Imagine that there is um, a young man seeking advice from god's word about whether to ask his girlfriend to marry him and as he dances around the scriptures he finds a couple of verses that provide the answer he so desperately wants he goes to first corinthians chapter 7 and verse 36 and, the, and late in that verse it says they should get married so he assumes okay that means i'm supposed to get married then he goes over to john chapter 13 and verse 27 where jesus said what you are about to do do quickly and he concludes that he needs to get married right now. Well, what he did is he didn't consider the context of those passages. And in 1 Corinthians chapter 7, if he'd read the whole chapter, there's instructions about remaining single, or remaining in whatever state you are, because Paul was specifically addressing some issues going on there in Corinth. And if you go over to John chapter 13 and verse 27, that was Jesus speaking to Judas about going ahead, going, moving forward with the betrayal, basically. So He's taking these things out of context and, and using them for reference. Do you realize a lot of preachers do that? Pick and choose verses that say what they want them to say. You can make the Bible say anything you want it to say by ignoring context. That's why it's so important that we understand what's going on in the immediate vicinity of the text we're looking at. Here is a diagram of, of, that's used in the book about the levels of surrounding context. Imagine that purplish pink circle in the middle is the passage you're reading, the verse you're reading or the couple of verses you're reading. You don't just need to study that verse. You need to also consider the immediate context, which is the verses closest to it, the immediate verses before and after it. Then you need to go to the larger section, the, the whole thought process that's unfolding uh, in that paragraph or a couple of paragraphs, maybe even chapter or couple of chapters. And then you move on to the rest of the book and finally the rest of the Bible. Now, the context that is always most important is the one that's closest to it. So the immediate, the immediate verses around it is your most important context, and then the larger section that it's in part of is your next important, most important, and so on. We need to be able to look at the verses around what we're reading, then look at the larger section, including the chapter or multiple chapters, and then look at the entire book, and then look at the, the whole of the Bible to get that surrounding context. Now, why does the surrounding context matter? The Bible is more than a collection of unrelated parts. The, the Holy Spirit moved the biblical writers to connect their words, sentences, and paragraphs into a literary whole in the normal way that people use language to communicate. All this is saying is that God didn't just have the biblical authors string together random thoughts. God inspired these writers to use human language language and its normal methodology to communicate his message. So I'm going to throw up a little paragraph on the screen. Oh, nope, that's not, I'm not ready for that yet. Never mind. It is safe to say that the most accurate interpretation of a passage is the one that best fits that passages surrounding context. One that best accounts for how the smaller sections fit into the larger sections. And when our interpretation contradicts the literary context, including the genre and the surrounding context, we violate the way people normally use language to communicate, and our interpretation is invalid. Now I'm going to put a little passage up on the screen. This is not from the Bible. This is just an example used in this book. Here's what it says. I heard an interesting story the other night. The quarterback faded back to pass. Carbon buildup was keeping the carburetor from functioning properly. The two-inch stakes were burned on the outside but raw on the inside. Ten feet high snowdrifts blocked the road. The grass needed mowing. The elevator raced to the top of the 100-story building in less than a minute. The audience booed the poor performance. Can you make any sense of that whatsoever? No, it's just random statements attached to each other in a paragraph form. That is not normal communication. The Bible's not written that way. That's why we have to focus on the surrounding context, because each thought is intentionally related to the next thought in some way, shape, or form. And we need to understand how that those thoughts are interconnected to understand what our passage is saying and meaning. We have to identify that surrounding context. And so here's what we're going to do. We're going to look at three things, three steps in the process of identifying the surrounding context. See, when it comes to the surrounding context, our main goal is to identify how an author's thought flows through each part of the book to form the whole. That's the objective. And we're going to work on this by utilizing the short book of Philemon and we're going to focus on understanding what's happening between verses 4 and 7. So here's the text that is our focus, the passage that would be at the center of those concentric circles. I thank my God always when I remember you in my prayers because I hear of your love and of your of the faith that you have Toward the Lord Jesus and for all the saints, and I pray that the sharing of your faith may become effective for the full knowledge of every good thing that is in us, for the sake of Christ. For I have de- de- derived much joy and comfort from your love, my brother, because the hearts of the saints have been refreshed through you. Now, as you read this passage, questions like why did, questions should come to mind. Like why did Paul say this about Philemon? Is he just praying for Philemon as we would pray for a friend, or is there more to it? Does, does Paul thank God for Philemon because simply because Philemon is a highly respected spiritual leader? I mean, there's a church meeting in his home. Obviously, Paul is praising Philemon for something, but why does he give him this glowing description? And you're not really going to know the answers to those questions, until you know the surrounding context. But to grasp what Paul really means in these verses, you need to examine what Paul says before and after this passage. And this is what we mean by the surrounding context. It's understanding how a section fits with what comes before and after it. Because if you don't know the surrounding context, you will probably just skim the surface and miss the real meaning of the text. And you need to discover the surrounding context of verses 4 through 7 to grasp Paul's message in this section. So finding the surrounding context will involve three steps, basic steps. I'm sure there could be more, but these are the basic. Number one, identify how the book is divided into paragraphs and sections. Now, if you have a Bible in your lap or on your phone, no matter what translation you pick, it's going to break up the book of Fleeman into paragraphs. And I want you to... Uh, um, open your, I want you to look at it, your Bible right now and, and uh, look at whichever translation you use because every translation will break it up a little bit differently, typically. And so when you want to identify how a book is divided into paragraphs or sections, this can be a starting place. But you have to remember that the editors of your translation are determining how to break it up into paragraphs for you. Paul did not create paragraphs. Paul did not create chapters and verses. The original authors of the Bible did not have those things integrated into the text. Those are additions to help you and I. Scriptures and verses are there to help us find passages more easily. And the paragraphs are there to help show us thought processes. But... It's strange when you start looking at different translations because let's throw Philippians up here on the screen real quick. When we throw these four translations up on the screen, you'll find new paragraphs marked off such as this. If you're looking at the ESV, verses 1 and 2 will be a paragraph, verse 3 will be a new paragraph all by itself, verse 4 through 7 will be a paragraph, verses 8 through 16, verse 17 through 20, verse 21 through 22, 23 and 24, and then finally 25. That's the breakdown of paragraphs in the ESV. The verse 1 and 2 uh, is the kind of the hardest one to distinguish because they kind of break it up in the middle of verse 1 and, and make it look like two paragraphs, but we're just keeping them together because the verse is broken in half. And you look at, you look at these four translations, probably the four most used translations within our congregation, outside of the KJV, and not one. Not any two of these are exactly the same. So which one's right? Well, technically none of them. Because there were no paragraphs. But how did they come to these conclusions? That's the important thing. And how can you come to conclusions about where paragraphs should exist in the text? Well, it's not as complicated as you might think, because we've already gone through that process early on of reading carefully and things to be looking for. So when you want to identify for yourself how this text should be divided up, all you've got to look for is changes in the text that serve as clues to a shift in the author's flow of thought. Items that mark changes or transitions would include things like conjunctions. Change of genre or style, like going from a greeting to a prayer, to instructions, that sort of thing changes of topic or theme, changes in time, location, or setting. That one really applies to narratives, especially. And grammatical changes, where pronouns change, where verb tense changes, where these subjects and objects in the sentence change. You would be looking for those things to serve as a clue that there's a change in thought, or a change in emphasis, or a change in theme topic in the text. So going back to Philemon, Notice a change in the genre slash style between verses 3 and 4 as Paul switches from a greeting to a prayer in those verses. That's a cue that there is a change. That would be a good paragraph marker, a good, a good uh, section marker. And then, there, then if you look at verse 8, there's a conjunction that leads off verse 8. It's the term therefore in most translations, maybe all. Verse 17 also has a a, uh, conjunction. I believe it's the the term so. Um, There may be other conjunctions used in different translations. I didn't look all of them up. And then if you skip down to the end of the book of Philemon, you'll notice that verse 22 has has final instructions. Verse 23 has a final greeting. And verse 25 has a final blessing we again have shifting of genre styles, instructions, uh, greeting, blessing. All those are marking transitions. So if we go back to this screen, notice we, we said, hey, there, there's a transition in genre slash style between verses 3 and 4. So guess what all four translations have done? They've noted a transition at verse 4. All of them agree with that. And then we said there's a conjunction at the start of verse 8. And guess what? All four translations note that con- that verse 8 should start a new section. We also said there's a conjunction at verse 17. All four translations say there should be a transition at verse 17. And then we said uh, down there at verse 23, you have an... You, you start this... Uh, verse 22 and verse 23, you have instruction shifting to blessing, shifting to... No... Instruction shifting to greeting, shifting to blessing. And so verse 23 gets separated from verse 22 and verse 25 gets separated from verses 23 and 24, because there's a genre shift between each of those verses. And all of these translations agree on that. The other stuff in between, that's them making different, making their judgment calls. But see, this is what you can do. You can map out by looking at multiple translations, seeing where they put transitions, Then go back into the text and see where you notice there ought to be translation, transitions, based on conjunctions, based on genre change, things like that. And you can do a comparison just like this and say, well, I definitely know there should be paragraph changes here, here, and here. Don't know if that one should be one, but I know, I know at least in these five spots, there should be a there should be some sort of mark of transition of content in some fashion. Why, now, why does that matter? Why should we do that? Because what you're going to do is use that, use your paragraph markings to help you follow the train of thought of the author. See, the second step in all this is then to summarize the main idea of each section in about a dozen words or so. Not, you don't want to get too detail-oriented. Man, we are having issues. We don't, you don't want to get too detail-oriented, but the next step is to take your breakdown of the passages, your, your identification of the uh, different sections, and then summarize each section in as few of words as possible. Don't worry, I'm going to show you examples here in just a second. And what this is going to do is it's going to help you see the train of thought. Here's what Paul was focused on in the first three verses. Here's what Paul was focus- focused on in verses 4 through 7. Here's what he was focused on in that section that starts at verse 8, and so on. And you're going to be stringing together the flow of thought, so that you are grasping what he's getting at. So when writing your summary, think about two things. For each section, think about two things. The topic or main idea of that section, and what the author says about the topic or the main idea. Here are the examples. Also, I need to say this, for each summary statement you write, make sure to summarize the point of the whole section and not just a portion of the section. Also, resist the temptation to get lost in all the details. Stick with the main point. Stick with that big idea. Here is what Philemon could look like. In the first three verses, and granted, the authors of the book then came up with their own um, section division. But in the first three verses, they say Paul identifies the letter... Senders and receivers and offers a greeting. I know it said recipients, but it helps us say receivers. Paul identifies who the author is, who the recipient is, and offers a greeting. That's their summary of the first three verses. That's a pretty good concise summary of what happens. Verses four through seven, which is the focus of our what we're trying to focus on. Verses four through seven, Paul thanks God for Philemon's faith and love and prays for him. Verses 8 through 16, Paul appeals to Philemon for his son Onesimus and offers Philemon perspective on God's plan. Verses 17 through 20, Paul urges Philemon to receive Onesimus as he would receive Paul himself. In verse 21, Paul expresses confidence that Philemon will do even more than he asks. Verse 22, Paul shares his hope to come in person and visit Philemon. Verses 23 and 24, Paul shares greetings from his fellow workers. And in verse 25, Paul closes the letter with a benediction of grace. That's how a summary would work. And here's what might happen as you go about the process of summarizing your sections. You might realize that maybe you need to adjust your sections somewhat. Because as you write a summary for each paragraph or each section, you can evaluate your decisions about each section's division. So don't be afraid to reconfigure those units As you try to summarize the main point you may realize as you're describing the main point of one section that the verse that you included the last verse you included in that section really should go with the next one now don't ignore your transition markers that you observe those conjunctions or those changes in genre things like that you don't want to ignore those and just dilute them you want to keep those in perspective but you may also want to say, okay, maybe this verse doesn't stay in this section. Maybe I need to keep it with the, put it with this other one. So don't, don't be afraid to make those changes. So the first step is to break down the passage in this, into sections. The second step is then to summarize each section. The third step in this process of identifying the surrounding context The third step and final for what we're doing is to explain how your particular passage relates to the surrounding sections. In other words, now that you've summarized each section, you go back and find the section you're focused on, and now you're going to explain how it's connected to what happened before it and what happened after it. So we're focused on verses 4 through 7 of Philippians. That's our key emphasis from from this particular passage. should have said this. Now that you can see the author's flow of thought the entire, through the entire book, flow of through the, yeah, I messed that up. Flow of thought through the entire book by reading your section summaries, it is time to look at how your passage fits into its surroundings. So if you go to the book of Philemon, and you're looking at verses 4 through 7 as our emphasis, we noted, and I probably should go back here, we noted that verses 4 through 7 in that passage, Paul thanks God for Philemon's faith and love, and prays for you. What happens immediately before that? Paul sends a greeting to Philemon, addresses the letter to Philemon. So this is an intentional letter to Philemon, and immediately after greeting him, Paul now is praying for him and thanking God for these wonderful characteristics that Philemon is known for, particularly faith and love. And then you get to verses 8 through 16, the context that immediately follows it. In those verses, Paul appeals to Philemon for Onesimus and offers Philemon perspective on God's plan. Here's how this is all connected when you think about it. I'm gonna skip ahead now to the actual verses. We have this prayer in which Philemon is being praised with for a number of his characteristics. Paul says um, in his thanksgiving and prayer here that he's thankful for Philemon's love, love of the Lord, and love of his fellow brothers and sisters in Christ. Paul goes on to say that this particular, that Philemon's love has given him um, great joy and been a comfort to him in verse 7. And then he transitions in verse 8 to this process of talking about what he needs from Onesimus. Though I am bold enough in Christ to command you to do what is required, yet for love's sake, and what was something that he admired about Philemon? His love for Christ, his love for his fellow brothers in Christ. For love's sake, I prefer to appeal to you. I'm gonna praise you for your love, and now I'm going to appeal to your love. I, Paul, an old man and now a prisoner also for Christ Jesus, I appeal to you for my child Onesimus. Whose father I became in my imprisonment. Formerly, he was useless to you, but now he is indeed useful to you and to me. Now Paul is appealing, or will be appealing, to not only Philemon's love, but in particular Philemon's love for all the saints, because he's going to explain that Onesimus is a saint now. I I admire your love for all the saints. It gives me great joy and comfort to know that you love all the saints. And guess what? Onesimus, who used to be your servant and ran away, is coming back to you, not as your servant, but as your brother in Christ, as a saint. And I am appealing to this love that I'm praising in this prayer for you to accept him on those grounds. And so, in verse seventeen, so if you consider me your partner, receive him as you would receive me. If he has wronged you at all or owes you anything, charge that to my account. I, Paul, write this with my own hand. I will repay it. To say nothing of your owing me, even your own self. Yes, brother, I want some benefit for you in the Lord. Refresh my heart in Christ, confident of your obedience. I write to you, knowing that you will do even more than I say. He had also talked about how much Philemon was known for his love of the Lord. You notice how many times he mentions the Lord throughout all this? As a beloved brother, especially to me, but now much more to you, both in the flesh and in the Lord. I want some benefit from you in the Lord. Refresh my heart in Christ. What I'm trying to show you is how, in verses 4 through 7, Paul's prayer was setting the stage for him to be able to make this bold request Of Philemon. He's asking Philemon to receive Onesimus without consequences because Onesimus had run away as a slave. And Paul is appealing to his Christian qualities and to his Christian standing to get him to accept his request. That's how verses 4 through 7 connect to verses 8 through 21 here. But when you break it down and start seeing the uh, summary of each section, then you can start piecing together how the flow of thought works. So when you're studying the Bible, looking at literary context, go through that process. Let me take it back to there. Identify how the book is divided into paragraphs or sections. Summarize the main idea of each section in as few of words as possible. And then explain how your particular passage relates to the surrounding sections. That's the process of determining the literary context. And so hopefully, between last week and tonight, we've gained an insight into historical cultural context and literary context. That's our next tool in this process of studying the Bible, because we've learned how to read, now we're learning how to consider context. With that, let me say a prayer and we'll get out of here. Lord, we thank you again that we could be here tonight uh, to study this, and Lord, Sometimes these this subject matter is not easy to digest and it's a lot of information all at once. It's our prayer that you uh, have blessed us tonight and help us, Lord, uh, to, to become better students of your word because we want to know your will, we want to know your word, and we want to apply it to our lives. May you bless everyone here tonight, and Lord, we love you. It's through your son's name we pray. Amen.